joining hands with immaturity and foolishness and running straight off a cliff. <laughs> well, later that night, one of my students, Amanda Link, a.k.a. the informant, went home and told her mom, Mom, guess what? Joey said, Mr. Smith is burning in hell right now. So mom called her elder. The next night, the session called a meeting in my honor. <laughs> and they absolutely raked me over the coals. And they should have. It was a really dumb thing to do. I left that meeting, and I was walking back to my house. I lived right across the street from the church. I was walking back to my house, and I was so discouraged. I went in, sat in my den in the dark, just so disappointed in myself, so discouraged I had disappointed the elders, so discouraged about worrying whether or not word would get back to the wife. Yeah. Knock on the door. I get up and answer it. And it was the pastor. His name's Mike Sartell. And he came in, had a care package in his hand, six of them. <laughs> and he sat down in my den with me and he said, hey man, let's talk about failure and ministry because God knows I've had my share of them. Zeal alone is not a reliable guide for ministry. It must join hands with theology and wisdom. Theology drives ministry. That reality is at the very heart of our philosophy of ministry. Theology drives ministry. Two of our presuppositions, as I mentioned, are the church and the family. Two institutions created by God as primary influences in God's design in calling his elect to himself, in forming a community of faith, and in passing that faith down from generation to generation. Covenant theology shapes our view of both institutions. And in the process, gives us a paradigm for not only how we do ministry, but why we do ministry to youth and to families. The reality is God cares about the next generation. God cares about covenant children. God cares about your youth. And the beauty of the Bible is he has a framework by which he extends that care, his care, to your students. It's through the church. It's through the family, all within the context of the covenant of grace. So when we think about that, one of the things that I think is incredibly difficult about your job is that there are so many different opinions about your job that exist in the local church, right? I mean, this just in, the term youth director is not found in the Bible. Your existence is therefore illegitimate. Thank you for coming. There are those who say that covenant theology actually argues against your job and all age-specific education in the local church. 
They say the church has cowered to the culture in promoting this false distinction of the teenager. And in the process, we have fragmented the church according to age and left the family out altogether. And while they may be accurate in that latter assessment, many have jumped to other extremes. There are those who say that we don't need the church at all. Home church is the way to go. I mean, after all, the father is the priest of his home. His wife and his children, they are parishioners in his congregation. It's the family's job to raise children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. We don't need the church. So they say no to church. They say, therefore, no to youth ministry, but a whopping yes to family. Others say, well, no, we do need the church. The Bible does say something about the local church, but we don't need youth ministry. We don't need age-specific education in the church because the church should center on the family. So we should be having families worshiping together. We don't need children's church. We should have family Bible studies, family fellowships, family retreats. It's all about the family. So they say yes to the church, no to youth ministry, but yes to the family. Then there's still other people that may exist in your church. And they basically say, heck yes, we need the church. And heck yes, we need youth ministry because it's the church's job to train my children in the Lord. That's not my job as a parent. My job is to provide for them, to care for them, to feed them, to water them as if they're plants. That's their job the spiritual training of children. So they say, it's all about the church. It's all about youth ministry, but it's not about the family when it comes to the training of children. Well, what I want to do this morning is argue against all three of those notions. And what I hope to do is show you from Scripture that covenant theology, far from doing away with your role in the life of the local church, actually calls for it and reveals to us our priorities in carrying it out. Covenant theology is our grid for youth and family ministry and leads us to a paradigm that says yes to the church, yes to youth ministry and age-specific education or ministry, and yes to the family. Okay, so here's what we're going to do this morning, God willing. Do you ever come to a talk and feel like, I have way too much material to cover in the time span? Do you ever do that? I do it every single time I talk, okay? So what I want to do is do a very quick overview of covenant theology, just enough to make you mad. Then show, if we have time, why children of believers are a part of the covenant of grace. And then three, to see how that theology shapes how we do ministry to youth and families by seeing the role of the family and the role of the church in the lives of covenant children. Okay? Does that make sense? That's where we're headed. So quick, number one, a brief overview of covenant theology. Covenant theology is simply the systematic study of God's redemptive plan for his people. 
The covenant is the framework by which God ordinarily brings salvation to his elect. It is the skeleton of Scripture and of all redemptive history. Oh, Palmer Robertson, in his book, Christ of the Covenants, defined it this way. A covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. So a covenant's a bond. It binds two parties together. Ordinarily, that bond involved the shedding of blood. And oaths and signs were attached to it. So you remember in Genesis 22, Abraham is about to slay Isaac by God's command, by the way. And just when he's about to lower the knife, God stays his hand and stops him. And God says this to Abraham. He says, because you have done this, because you have, in essence, trusted me, and we're not going to withhold your son, I'm going to make a promise to you. And that promise is, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in heaven. They're going to be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. And in order to confirm that promise more deeply to Abraham, God took an oath. He said, because there is no one greater than me, I swear by myself, Abraham, this promise will become true. When you move to Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews is commenting on that. And it's kind of like just the awkwardness and the distraction of having John Stone wander around both sides of the room, up to the front, do your attractional thing somewhere else. Um, the writer of Hebrews comments on it. Yeah, your Jesus thing. Um, the writer of Hebrews comments on it, and he says, this was given, the promise and the oath, so that by two unchangeable things, those two things, we today may have an anchor for our hope. And the anchor for our hope is in the promise, in the word, in the covenant that God has established and made. God gave that to Abraham for a reason. He knew how long it was going to be before his promise then found fulfillment in Abraham's life. He knew the doubts that would seep into Abraham's mind in regard to that very promise. So he confirms it. God's simply saying, in my covenant, that's the way I deal with my people. I give you my promises, my covenant promises. I confirm them by myself. So a covenant is a bond that ordinarily involved the shedding of blood. Attached to it were oaths and signs, whether it be the sign of the rainbow in the covenant with Noah, the sign of circumcision with Abraham, or the sign of baptism in the new covenant. A covenant also involves terms, promises, and requirements. There are five core promises, and there's no way you can see that, I bet. There are five core promises in the covenant of grace. The promise of a seed, right? And we see types. In other words, a seed, a hero that God would send to deliver his people. We see types of that in the Old Testament, whether it be Seth or Moses or David. And we find its ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah himself, Jesus of Nazareth, right? The Christ, the hero. 
We see the promise of a land. It found temporal fulfillment in Canaan, but all of that merely pointed forward to the new world, to a new heaven and a new earth that God is preparing for us. The promise of God's presence, right? In the Old Testament, God's presence was seen in the tabernacle, the temple, the Shekinah glory. It's seen in the new covenant in the presence of the Holy Spirit, even within us. But all of that, Adam brings it, all foreshadows the new world where God himself will dwell among his people. The promise of protection. In the Old Testament, we see it in the pillar of cloud, right? In the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness. We see it in all the references in Scripture about God being our rock, our strength, our fortress, our refuge. But it finds ultimate fulfillment in the new world where God will shut evil out forever. Evil will not be allowed in, nor any of its effects. They will never be able to touch us again in the new world. This is God's covenant promise to you. And then the fifth, the blessing to the nations. He says this to Abraham, through you, I will bless the world. Through you, I'm going to bring people of all strands and backgrounds into my covenant, into my salvation, into my kingdom. And we see it happening in the Old Testament as some Gentiles were engrafted into the covenant. And we see it in the New Testament as the great commission is fulfilled. But it all looks forward to the new world where God says there's going to be people of every tribe, nation, and tongue. A massively, beautifully great variety of my people dwelling together in harmony forever. Those are the five core covenant promises. Surrounding, enveloping them is the one central covenant promise that we see repeated throughout Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. I will be your God and you will be my people. God's promising us union and communion with himself forever. The promises of the covenant. The covenant also involved responsibilities. Basically, faith and fidelity. Trust me and follow me. Those requirements, even these promises of the covenant, are sovereignly administered. A covenant's a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. What does that mean? It means it's not a negotiation. The God-demand covenant wasn't a negotiation where man negotiates the terms with God. God determines the terms of the covenant. God dictates the terms of the covenant. Now, there are two primary covenants in the Bible. Eh, let's not go there yet. There are two primary, co primary covenants in the Bible, the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. The covenant of works, also known as the Adamic covenant, if you'll excuse my language, the covenant of works is this. God made a covenant with Adam to give him life if he perfectly obeyed. God said, here's the requirement, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will surely die. God required perfect obedience to that requirement, to that command. If Adam ate of the tree, he would die. If he obeyed God, he would have been confirmed in a state of innocence for eternity. 
Adam, our federal head, our representative, failed. He ate of the tree, he disobeyed God, he sinned against God, and therefore he fell, and we fell with him. Here's the question. When Adam failed, did the requirement for perfection, perfect obedience, cease? Did it go away? No. It continued on. God, the requirement of the covenant of works is still in force. You must be perfect. You must obey me perfectly. So there stood Adam, hopeless and helpless to meet God's demand. Cast out of the garden. Cast out of fellowship with God. But then notice that in the very context of God pronouncing the curses that would come upon mankind as a result of the fall, God gives words of hope and grace and salvation. Genesis 3.15, the first instance of the gospel in the Bible, and I will put enmity between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God's saying this, I'm going to put enmity between the seed of the woman, those who belong to God, and the seed of the serpent, those who don't, those who belong to the evil one, the father of lies. This enmity defines the drama of redemptive history. It defines the persecution or it explains the persecution of God's people throughout the ages. We see it beginning with Cain and Abel. We see it with Jacob and Esau, Isaac and Ishmael, David and Goliath, the Philistines and the Israelites, and all of the spiritual warfare that we face every day in our lives is explained by this, this enmity. Here's the hope. That term seed in the phrase seed of the woman is a collective noun in the singular, referring not merely to the group as a whole, but to a representative out of that group whom God would raise up and send to rescue his people from their sins. In other words, God is saying here in Genesis 3.15 and beyond, I'm going to make a second covenant, a covenant of grace in which I will send a hero who will rescue my people. I will send a second Adam who will succeed where the first Adam failed. I'm going to send a champion who will win salvation for my people. That hero, that second Adam, that champion is Jesus. And so in that way, the covenant of works is not abrogated. It's not done away with. It is taken up into and made a part of the covenant of grace where it's fulfilled by Jesus. In Genesis 3.15, there was this cool ceremony that God went about with Abram. And the background to it is this. In a man-to-man -man covenant back in the day, this was a common way they would go about making a covenant. They would literally, as Scripture uses this language, they would cut a covenant. And so they would go out and they would get animals, right? I forget the animals listed in Genesis 15. Let's just say, 
I don't know, an ox. We know it's not birds for some reason. An ox, let's say it's a sheep. Uh, let's say it's a, a puppy. They would go out and get these animals, and then what they would do is they would chop the animals in two. So we got, like, it's painful. There's whatever they do, bleeping, blurting, yelping. They would, the blood is everywhere, and they cut the, the animals in two, and then they would separate the pieces. And then they would each pass through the pieces. And in doing so, they were taking what's called a self-maledictory oath. And what that means is this. They were visually saying, with blood all around, with the noise of death, with those little puppy eyes, they were saying this as they passed through the pieces. If I break the terms of this covenant that we're making with each other, if I break my promises I'm making to you, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. Then the second guy would go through, take the same oath. That background in mind, God causes a deep sleep to fall over Abram, and he appears to him in a vision. And like a, it's like, it's a flaming torch in a smoking oven, right? Whatever that is. Whatever vision that brings to you. It was a theophany, a physical manifestation of God. And God, in this vision, commands Abraham to go get those puppies and bring them back and do this same thing. Cut them in two and separate the pieces. Abram does that. Then God passes through the pieces. And he says, Abram, if I break my promises, if I break the terms of this covenant of grace that I'm making with you, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. In a sense, he's again swearing by himself. Now what do we expect? Now we expect Abram to pass through the pieces and take the same oath, but he doesn't. God passes through the pieces for Abram, and in doing so, was saying this, Abram, if you break the terms of this covenant, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. Catapult forward to the day in which the Son of God dies for people who failed in their covenant keeping. Jesus fulfills the terms of the covenant of works as a part of the covenant of grace as our substitute. Covenant of works. Second covenant is covenant of grace. Oh, gosh. Okay. This is all I want you to see about the covenant of grace. I, I just have to leave a lot of time for the last point because I don't want to miss all the practical stuff. Okay. Th this is the way I want you to think about the covenant of grace. One covenant of grace formed or inaugurated formally with Abraham. Okay? That's why you see that little circle there. What we find is there are different manifestations of the one covenant of grace as you move through Scripture, right? At the time of Abraham, Moses, David, then the new covenant when Jesus comes. Here's what's happening throughout redemptive history in Scripture. As we progress, the covenant is ever-expanding. It's expanding in regard to content and in regard to scope. For example, content. 
At the time of Abraham, God says, Abraham, walk before me, be blameless. That's my command. Well, by the time we get to Moses, we understand more deeply what that means in the form of Ten Commandments. We're also beginning to see more and more types of the coming Christ in the ceremonial law at the time of Moses in particular and David. At the time of David, we're learning more about the temple and the kingdom of God. And then by the time Jesus comes in the new covenant, the, the covenant is the con, like the expansion of the content is open wide because now he is the one who is the fulfillment of everything that has gone before. All the promises, all the types, all the ceremonies, everything points to him and is fulfilled in him. But it's also expanding in regard to scope. At the time of Abraham, the covenant was on a patriarchal basis. It was for Abraham and his descendants, his family. By the time Moses comes around, and the time of David as well, that family has expanded into a nation of people. God's organized them into a nation. The number is expanding. It's still, however, a covenant made primarily with Israelites. A few Gentiles engrafted in through time, but not a lot. Jesus comes and says, I'm opening this puppy up universally now. The gospel is going to go, the fifth promise of the covenant, right, to the nations. And it's going to start in Jerusalem. It's going to start with the Jews. And it's going to go to the Samaritans. It's going to go to the Gentiles. It's going to go to the world. So it's ever-expanding in that way. One thing that you need to know about the covenant, at the core of covenant theology at the core of the covenant of grace and all these different manifestations of it is the family god is passing the faith from generation to generation through the family through parents and through the rest of the covenant community and their influence on those children that is consistently true in covenant theology okay now, what does that mean for ministry? It means this, and I don't have time to tell you why we baptize babies, okay? Um, but I'm just going to put it this way. i got to skip. One way of salvation, not law in the old, grace in the new. In the old, they look forward in faith to the Christ who would come. In the new, we look back in faith to the Christ who came. One way of salvation in both covenants. When a child of a believer... This is what baptism means. The child of a believer is baptized. That signifies them being set apart. Okay, set apart unto what? Set apart as being members of God's covenant community. Baptism doesn't bring them into the small box of redemption. Baptism doesn't save any more than circumcision saved in the Old Testament. Circumcision pointed forward to the need for a circumcision of the heart. So does baptism. It points to the need for cleansing. But it marked them as a covenant child. It marked them as being a part of the covenant community of God's people. And when you think about the covenant community, when you think about the covenant community, it is basically made up of two essential parts. The covenant community as a whole 
which finds expression in the local church and the family, which is the basic building block of the covenant. The question is, what are the roles, what are the responsibilities of the family and the covenant community, the local church, in the lives of covenant children? That's the question I want us to wrestle with. So let's think about the family. What's the responsibility of parents toward their children? What should family look like in its most ideal sense? So if you could design every family in the church, these things would be consistent of them, what would they be? A non-rhetorical question? You have no aspirations for the families in your church. You could care less how they're run. Um, thank you for joining us. Um, the question is, what should family look like in its most ideal sense? What are the responsibilities of parents toward their children? And children toward their parents. Praying with and for their children, to quote a vow. Yes. Good. Man, great stuff. You want to come up here? I mean, yeah, it was really good. Yeah, and fathers not exasperating their children, which is, it's just so much fun, though. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Yeah, open repentance from parent to child is huge, huge. Not doing the, I'm not going to admit a fault, anything like that. It's a sure way to induce rebellion. Somebody else had a hand up back here, so. No? Over here? Yeah, go ahead. Discipleship? What do you mean by that? It's trip. Yeah, no, and exactly what you guys are talking about is like a Deuteronomy 6 way of life, you know, where he says, love the, he says to parents, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. 
These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. So before he ever gets to the section here where there is teaching children, impressing upon children, he begins with the parent's heart. And he's saying, I want your heart to be captivated by me. I want your heart as a mom and dad to be captivated by my everlasting, infinite love, steadfast love, covenant, loyal love for you. So that you will be induced then to love me with all your being. To love me. That these words of mine, these commandments, my word, my promises, let them first be on your heart. Because we all know, whether it's as youth leaders and teaching students or as parents, right? I have four children and two grandchildren, by the way. Um, that we all know what it's like to try and teach or lead out of an empty heart, out of a tank that is just empty. You know, like we're spiritually dry. We're just, and it feels very hypocritical. It feels very insincere. And it takes a lot of, honestly, when it happens to me, I feel like it takes a ton of human effort. And that's the problem, isn't it? But as we marinate in the love of God, as we marinate in the gospel, as we marinate in God's covenant promises to us, God's conditioning our heart, and the Spirit of God uses that to be able to convey truth to our children or our students. And that's what makes it effective, the Spirit's use of it in that way. So now, what does he tell us to do toward children, parents? Impress these things on your children. Talk about them, right? When you sit at home, okay, well, maybe family worship. We'll talk more about that later. When you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you rise up, in other words, in all of life, live life with your children with an eye toward me. That's how you teach them. And so it is a as-you-go kind of approach. It is a being-with kind of approach. Um, there's a youth director here that told me he had a, a dad that lost his daughter, probably when she was about 23, I think is when she died. And he was talking to this dad, who was obviously heartbroken, and he said he was a very successful businessman, CEO type, and... Um, he always justified his lack of time with his daughter growing up in this way. I'm going to give her quality time. That's what I'm going to do. When the times that I do spend with her, it's going to be quality time. After she died, he told this youth director, he said, I mean, I'd give anything for the quantity. Because the quality is in the quantity. You see? And so, as a dad... I've just got to be way careful that I don't allow ministry in my life to get in the way of my kids. Or they're going to resent it forever, right? Instead, I'm looking for times to spend with her. I taught a junior high class one time, and I asked them, what's your most memorable moment with your dad? You know, not a single one of those junior high students said, you know, I remember when my dad sat down and we had family worship. Not a single one. Now, I will maintain that has an impact over time in their lives they don't even know about. But every one of them brought up an event or activity they did with their dad. Ma'am, me and my dad rode go-karts one time. It was awesome. 
where my dad let me help him work on the car, and we did it together all afternoon. It was so cool. That's what they remembered. And it's in the context of fostering those kinds of relationships with our children that we are given greater opportunity to organically talk to them about the gospel, to point them to Jesus. Because reality is, parents oftentimes don't have a clue about this, and I oftentimes forget it, right? That it's, they're so concrete in their thinking. When I'm talking about children or teenagers, they're so concrete in their thinking. And yet God has given that what they need, because they're so concrete, they need examples. They need stories. That's why stories are so effective with this age group. They need something they can see and touch. Well, it's called creation, and it's all around us every single day. And it is declaring the glory of God over and over and over again, and it never stops. And it does it, different aspects of it, in unique ways. There, is spiritual, there are spiritual lessons to be learned all around us. We just got to help parents connect the dots between creation, biblical truth, and the hearts of their children. So it's using experiences, using what God has already given us all around to lead our children in the Lord, right? Um, I think one other thing in regard to um, ideal family life is not minimizing the effect of a healthy marriage upon children. The, the, the relationship between husband and wife has a dramatic impact upon their children. In fact, one theologian put it this way. The best thing from the back of his Lincoln, he said, the best thing you could probably do as a father is make sure they see how much you love their mother. Right? No truer words. No truer words than that. So having a healthy marriage. Okay, well, that's the family. Um, well, let, let me mention this. When, when you think, and this was alluded to it a minute ago, every single time that a parent brings a child for baptism, okay, this is what they vow to do. This is out of the PCA Book of Church Order, which is the denomination I'm affiliated with. Do you acknowledge, all right, they're taking this vow before God and man. Do you acknowledge your child's need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ and the renewing grace of the Holy Spirit? So as a parent, as they bring their baby, they're saying, look, I know this baby needs to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. That as cute as she is, she is not innocent. That was lost in the garden. She needs the blood of Jesus. She needs grace. Every time a parent brings an infant before the congregation to be baptized, they vow, do you claim God's covenant promises on his behalf and do you look in faith to the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation as you do for your own so every parent as they hold their baby in their hands before God and man is saying this I'm not enough I'm not enough I want to be enough I want to be the savior of this child I love this child but I know I'm not enough this child needs Jesus and I look in faith to Jesus alone to provide that for him. That's where I'm looking. And I'm not looking to manipulate, right, as a means of grace, to guilt trip as a means of grace. I'm looking at Jesus in faith. And then three is the kicker. Do you now unreservedly dedicate your child to God and promise 
in humble reliance upon divine grace, that you will endeavor to set before him a godly example. I'm mindful that the way I live has an impact upon my child. That you will pray with and for him. Not just with him, but for him. That you will teach him the doctrines of our holy religion. What does that assume? That they know the doctrines of our holy religion, right? And not only that they're learning them and seeking to know them, they're seeking to understand them on a level where they can communicate them to a child. And that you will strive by all the means of God's appointment to bring him up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Every parent that brings their infant for baptism says to that question, I do. Yes. I've never heard one say no. Probably all should say no. I don't know. But they say I do. So parents, on a superficial level at least, know the primary responsibility for raising children in the Lord, for teaching them God's word and his gospel, falls to the parents. It does not fall to the church. It's not the church's primary job. It's the parents. So if I believe that, if that's a presupposition, that's got to shape how I do ministry. That my ministry has to be more, it has to be wider than just youth. It has to embrace parents. We'll talk more about that in a minute. All right, what about the church? What about the covenant community? What should it look like in its most ideal sense when it comes to loving and ministering to covenant children? So nor do we have aspirations for our local churches. Okay. So en engagement across generational lines, intentional engagement. Say that one more time. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Happens through that. Okay? Yeah, being very intentional with them. Yeah, I mean, when, when you think about it, just because the primary responsibility for this does not fall to the church doesn't mean it's not a responsibility of the church. It is. It's just a secondary responsibility. And the model that we see in the Bible is, Titus 2, the older teaching the younger, the younger serving the older. When you look at, for example, Timothy, who were the primary influences in Timothy's life? His mama, his granny, and Paul. Family, covenant community. In other words, church has a role to play in my life and in the lives of my children, and vice versa, right? Church is not an event. Church is not an activity. Church is a community. It is a covenant community 
where we have shared responsibilities toward each other. And it's a concept that is very difficult in Western individualistic society for many to embrace, especially when it comes to their kids. Because parents are inherently protective. That is a good thing that can become a very bad thing. And so we resist other influences in my child's life. And it can even come to the point where you've seen it in your own church. You have parents that won't allow their kids to come to Sunday school because they know the, the person that's teaching that class. They have a different view on that topic than they do. I don't want my children exposed to that. And I think our, so on the one hand, we affirm moms and dads seeking to protect their kids. Where, where would we be if that didn't occur? And then on the other hand, we push against it. And we say, you know what? This isn't something to be threatened by. This is a teaching opportunity. Okay, what they teach you in Sunday school? Well, let's work through that. This is what we think. This is what I believe the Bible teaches. Let's go there. So we work through these things and use them as teaching opportunities, not just always trying to shelter and protect from differences. Every time a parent brings a child for baptism, the congregation makes a vow between God and man. Do you as a congregation undertake the responsibility of assisting the parents in the Christian nurture of this child? Amen. We stand up and sing, Jesus loves me while they carry the baby across the church. And it's a happy, tearful moment. But most of the time, it's a vow that's never fulfilled. Both family and church have a role to play in students' lives. All right. I love two things in life more than anything else next to my wife, children, and grandchildren. I love Christmas, and I love Disney World where all your dreams come true, right? When one Christmas, we decided to give our kids as their main gift, a trip to Disney World. And so we planned it all out. We bought all their kind of smaller gifts, but we wrapped each child's gift in unique Disney character paper. Everybody had their own favorite character in the paper, right? Christmas day comes and they work through all the smaller gifts, and it finally comes to the point to open the main gift. And they each had a large rectangular gift. And so he said, we want you to all open this one at the same time. Ready? On your mark. Get set. My children are college age by now. No, I'm kidding. They're, they're little. <laughs> Every Christmas in college. Ready? Um, you set, go. And so they tear into the paper, and as they tear the paper away, it gives way to suitcases. What every child dreams of on Christmas morning for their main gift, a suitcase. And so as they're looking at their suitcases, you can just see the forlorn expressions coming over their faces, right? They're so disappointed. We've been anticipating this moment for months. And this is it, Dad? And so I looked and I said, open the suitcase. And so they zipped open the suitcase, and each of them lifted out a dwarf. Not literally. <laughs> One of the seven dwarfs. And they're looking at these dwarfs, and we kind of got them each, the dwarf that kind of matched their personality. Ashley, my oldest, got Doc. 
Uh, Hannah, my thirdborn, got happy. Jennifer, my baby, got bashful. Joe, my only son, well, he got dopey. So anyway, they're looking at this thing, this dwarf, these stuffed animals, and they're still trying to figure it out. And finally, my oldest one, her eyes just go like this. And she goes, no way. We're going to Disney World. We're going to Disney World. And all the other kids, the younger ones are looking at her, and they're trying to figure it out. And finally, they start getting it. They're all jumping up and down. We're going to Disney World. We're going to Disney World. And the emotion became so intense that thirdborn, my most sensitive child, Hannah, she just started crying. <laughs> it was just too overwhelming, you know, the whole deal. Here's my point in that story. We were very intentional, right, in making that Christmas memorable for our kids. We were intentional not only in how we planned the trip, but in how we communicated it to our children, all with one destination in mind, Disney World. Here's my question. To what destination are you leading your students? What's your plan to get them there, and how are you communicating it to them? We are leading our students to a destination whether we realize it or not. The question is, is it the right destination and are we being intentional about it? A lot of times what we do is that we lead our children or students to the law because we want them to be good. Now, is that necessarily a bad thing? No, because the heart's intention for you is going to be this. Man, I want them to avoid so many of the mistakes that I made when I was their age. Some of those mistakes are still having ramifications on my life today. I want them to escape that. I want them to know the joy of walking in the Lord and in the Lord's ways. That's not a bad thing. But if that's where we stay, then we're guilty of moralism. Other times we're trying to lead them to reform doctrine. We want them to know the right things and why they believe them. So what do we do? We catechize the heck out of them. We're trying to give them these categories that will sustain them and be foundations for them long after they leave our homes as parents or our ministries in youth ministry. Is that a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. But if that's where we stay, we're guilty of intellectualism. Sometimes we're trying to lead them to church activity. That we want them active in the church, active in the means of grace. We want them uh, in corporate worship, in Sunday school or Bible studies or our youth group. We want them engaged with the church and happy with it. Is that a bad thing? No. But if that's where we stay, we're again guilty of moralism and actually creating a false view of the church. Other times, we just want to lead them to ourselves. Man, I want them, I want to have a close relationship with my students. I want them to have freedom to come and laugh with me, cry with me, be open with their questions, be open with their struggles. And so in ministry, we can often find ourselves kind of seeing that as a drug. That makes me feel good about me. Now, it may not come out that crassly in your thoughts, But if you're just leading them to yourself, well, that's selfish, right? What I would suggest is all of these things are good, but none of them are worthy destinations. There's only one worthy destination, 
and that's Jesus. And so what we're trying to do, Kurt Cooper is calling me right now. Idiot. All right, so, um, so what we're trying to do is we're trying to lead our students, right, through the law to Jesus, through reform doctrine to Jesus, through church activity to Jesus, and through our ministry to them to Jesus. The longing of our heart is this, isn't it? The longing of our heart is, I want my students to know Jesus more vibrantly. I want them to know the love of Jesus for them. How can I connect, be used of God, independence of the Holy Spirit, how can I be used to connect them more vibrantly to Jesus? And I'm going to close by suggesting three ways. Right, this is known as the kite. And again, it's on your online notebook if you can't see that very clearly. One way that you can do this is this. You, as a youth leader, you look at that student, and you're going to deal with them one-to-one. Or you're going to deal with them as a peer group. In other words, you're going to do age-specific ministry. Common Grace Insights suggests to us that people learn differently at different stages in life. This was mentioned earlier. That children learn differently. They process information differently than teenagers. Teenagers process it differently from adults. There are physiological differences going on according to age. So your teenagers, the frontal lobe of their brain is still developing. It's not fully formed. The judgment center is not fully formed. That's why they do so many stupid things. That's why you say to them and you go, dude, what were you thinking? Well, I don't know. Exactly. You're not fully developed right here. Common grace also suggests that it is wise to target people in the same stage of life, right? That we may speak directly to and more deeply to their unique struggles questions and circumstances so that's why it can be very wise and strategic to have middle school students high school students the elderly young marrieds as a holistic method for doing ministry and education no but as a part of it because they're struggling uniquely at that stage in life and it gives me the opportunity to speak more deeply. That's why when you bring your students to RYM, right, your students go home, and many times what they say, they, they say this stuff to me. Man, I wish my pastor could preach like the preachers here at RYM or in my elective classes. And my response always is this, dude, your pastor has a way harder job. He's got to apply God's word, you know, from three to 93. We just have this limited age group. Well, the advantage of that is we can speak directly right, like a laser to that age group and what they're going through. So what we are doing in youth ministry is we are in part cultivating a sub-community of peers within the local church with the aim of reaching them for Christ and equipping them to serve. The challenge in that is this. They're still developing socially as well, not just mentally, but socially. They're still trying to figure out 
who they are identity. They're socially awkward many times. They're looking around trying to figure out, man, where do I fit? Where am I going to be accepted? So many of their decisions, their reactions are driven by, where do I fit? Am I safe? And so they're still trying to develop in those areas. But with that challenge brings opportunity to minister to them in a period of development and change, right? Because whenever there's, as they're developing, they know this awkwardness. They feel it. To have somebody safe come alongside of them and guide them through that is invaluable because we have the gospel. We're armed with the power of the gospel that speaks to those core needs. It answers identity, security, and belonging in ways that other things will never. And they're trying to meet those needs in all the wrong places, all the wrong needs, or all the wrong ways. So age-specific ministry is valid. The problem is this, I think. The problem is that's where most youth ministries stop. It's all about age-specific peer ministry. Well, what's the problem with that? The church is not a peer group. The church is made up of people from all different ages, backgrounds, levels of maturity in God's design. So if all I'm doing is age-specific ministry, I'm actually giving them a warped view of the church. Now, what do I mean by that? When they go to college, well, let me say this first. As you look at the kite, if you can make sense of it, we're moving toward the covenant community piece, transgenerational ministry. What we're trying to do in that case, in addition to age-specific ministry, we're trying to connect students to those in the church who are older than they are. We're trying to point them directly to those people that they then can lead them toward Jesus, that they then can provide another layer of influence to me as a youth leader, to parents. And that means many times they hear a message with a voice that is complimentary, and they listen, right? So that's what we're trying to do. When they go to college, we want their takeaway to be not merely a connection with a peer group, but even more importantly, we want them to have experienced the church. If we're only connecting them to their peers or to ourselves, we are not doing our jobs. Barna did a study. It was a five-year study comprised of eight national studies. It was done on teenagers and young adults from the ages of 18 to 29. It found that nearly three out of five, 60% of young Christians disconnect from church life either permanently or for a long period of time after the age of 15. Those polled were active in a Christian church during their teenage years. They were covenant children. That study was done in 2011. The numbers in studies more lately are suggesting 70% plus 
of those who grow up in the church, are leaving the church during their teenage years, or definitely when they go to college, many never to return. Those that do return do so when? When they start having kids, right? Here's the question. Why are so many leaving the local church? And we could spend, I promise, the rest of the day dissecting that and trying to answer it. But I'd ask you to entertain one thought, one possibility. Could it be that the way we typically do youth ministry is partly to blame? What we have done is emphasize the peer group above the church. We have segmented them off away from the rest of the congregation. We've given them as our normal practice in the church, their own Bible studies, their own music, frankly, their own room, their own retreats. It's been all about age-specific ministry. So now, when they go to college, what are they looking for? Another peer group experience. They're not looking for the local church. When they graduate, so what do they do? They join a campus ministry or a fraternity, a sorority. They graduate college, what are they still looking for? Because adolescence is now what? Up to like age 50? (laughs) What are they still looking for? A peer group experience. That's what meant the most to them in middle school and high school. They're not looking for the church because we haven't given them the experience of the church. For too many of them, they do not see the value of the church to their lives. They just don't. They're bored with it. They feel disconnected with it. When, uh, when I was in youth ministry, I had a, my best friend was 65 years old, sixth grade education. He's a woodcutter by trade. The godliest man I've ever known. One converted until he was 40. Godliest man I've ever known. The greatest evangelist I've ever known. Federal judges came to Jesus through his ministry as a woodcutter. So I went to him. His name is Wes. I said, Wes, would you be willing to get together once a month with Chad, who was a senior in high school? Just one, I don't want you to Bible study. I just want you to get together, talk to him, and pray. That's all I want you to do. I said, sure. And Chad agreed to do it as well. So here's this 18-year-old and a 65-year-old coming together once a month, getting to know each other, getting to know each other's heart through prayer. And I'll tell you, a bond was so forged that it still existed until three years ago when Wes died. That's a method, by the way. But it's going to look differently in different places. That worked in that situation. But it gave Chad a picture. Well, you know what? Well, the church does matter. Church is more than a peer group. I have something to learn from somebody, old man over here, that when I looked across the sanctuary at him, he just appeared to be like this crusty, smelly old person. You know? And Wes, same time, sees this teenager over here. No way on God's green earth is he going to go talk to the teenager. Why? Because he's intimidated by the teenager. I'm not going to be cool. They're going to think I'm an idiot. They're going to think I'm old and smelly. And so the youth leader helps bring them together in whatever creative ways you can think about. And you do a trial and error to see what happens and works best in your context. They get a picture then that the church is valuable to them. 
they're leaving, I think, also because they do not see the, their own value to the church. Like, is the church communicating to children and teenagers, you are valuable to us, to our ministry? Like Cindy said last night, children and youth ministry bring a vibrancy to the church. Well, how do they figure out if they're important? How do they get that? When, when, when I was a pastor of a church, we were kind of had a ministry to a nursing home that was near our church. When we would go to the nursing home, and we, I would walk in with my children, again, young children, 13 and down probably at that stage. The people there, their eyes would light up. Why? Because the preacher was coming to town? No, because of my kids. My kids. And my kids were going, Dad, I don't want to go in there. Because I tell them, all right, I want to spread out. Just get at different tables and just start talking to them. Dad, I don't know what to say. What am I going to say? Look, just ask them one question. How are you? You won't have to say another thing the whole time. <laughs> and that's what they would do. There was one guy in my church. His name was Ivan. Ivan the Terrible. Uh, would just like snore during my sermons. And um, Ivan, an older man, lost his wife. She died of cancer. And it was soon after that he was back at church. And my daughter, my oldest, Ashley, again, she was probably 13, 14 at the time. After church was over, people were kind of hanging out. I said, hey, Ash, why don't you go over to Mr. Ivan and just ask him how he's doing and ask how you can pray for him. Okay, Dad. So she went over, like she's my most ministry-minded child, right? She goes over, and she's talking to Ivan, and they have their conversation. Everybody else leaves except Ivan. He comes up to me, and he's got tears streaming down his face. He said, you'll never guess what your daughter Hannah did. She came to me, and she asked me how I was doing. Now, he got her name wrong, but that's not the point. <laughs> the point is, why, why was that so powerful in his life? Like, I could have gone and done the same thing. It was so powerful because it was so unexpected. In other words, youth is often given by youth and others as an excuse. I could do never, I could do no spiritual good. I could not really have a ministry to other people. Your youth gives you a platform for ministry that, frankly, people, you and I don't have anymore. It helps them see their value to the church, and that carries with them. I ain't got time for that quote. It's in your notes. All right, let me close by saying this one quick thing about family ministry. Oh, we still have four minutes. But the year twos are going to come in because they're ridiculous. Um, Age-specific ministry, transgenerational ministry, family ministry, right? I'm seeking to connect the student more vibrantly to Jesus indirectly by connecting them more vibrantly to their families, where parents are them leading them to Jesus, right? What that means when we look at families and presupposition is this. We recognize the God-given role of the family in students' lives. We respect it and we embrace it, right? Don't become cynical about parents just because you see them parenting in all the wrong ways or you would do it differently. No, we embrace the God-given entity of the family as a part of God's covenant plan. We see the lifelong influence of parents and their children's lives. 
Parents are still the primary influence in teenagers' lives over peers. You want to prove it? Take a friend away, see what happens to that teenager. Now take a parent away and see what happens. It's a lifelong influence. They're just gradually beginning to gain independence. So as a church, our goal is to help shape and mature the family in Christ. We are not surrogate parents. We desire to connect them to Christ through the family unit. Therefore, ministry to parents is key, right? For many parents, talking about spiritual things is foreign. It's not natural. And it could be they didn't grow up in that kind of environment. They don't have a model for it. They never talked to their kids about Scripture, about the Lord, about the gospel when they were young. And so now here they are, teenagers. Are you kidding? What am I going to say to them? This is what parents struggle with. They don't have a Deuteronomy 6 category for life. So take dads, for example. Dads typically are intimidated to the hilt to lead their children spiritually, much less do this thing, archaic thing called family worship. Now, why is that? Why would they be so intimidated? Because most of the time, their children know more about the Bible than they do, and their wife definitely does. It's because they struggle with their own sin and guilt and shame and insider thinking, man, who am I to talk to my children about this? When on the inside, my heart and life looks like this. And they need somebody to help apply the gospel to them desperately. It could be because if they dared ever sat down and opened their Bible and read it to the family and then started to talk about it, they'd look over to their right and their wife would be looking like this. <laughs> I know what you really like. Marital tension. Maybe it's just the busyness of life. The category for leading children spiritually has just been removed from their lives. It's been choked out. In this way, the family needs the covenant community to come alongside it. Moms and dads need the rest of the community to help encourage them and equip them in these things. Because family by itself is not enough. It's not enough. And I've realized this over time in deeper and more, more profound ways. The older my children got, the more severe the trials became. And it became evident, I desperately need other layers of influence in their lives. I need a youth leader. I need somebody older in the church. I need, I need somebody I don't even know that's going to come alongside them. And frankly, they're going to tell them some of the same stuff I would tell them, even with some of the exact same words but now they'll hear it because over time, man, my voice, wah, 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 wah. But to hear from somebody else in the covenant community, God uses that. Families need that. They need it. Family by itself isn't enough because families are broken. They're broken by divorce. They're broken by death. Think of the single mom in your church that's having to carry all of life by herself and try and train her children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. You don't think she needs a community to come around her and help her? It's broken by sin. It's broken by trials. 
The church, this is my last thing, and then I'll give a quote and we're done. The church must train covenant children, age specifically, as if the parents are doing nothing, because that's likely the case. But the church must also train the parents to lead their children to Jesus. The church staff has to think deeply about this. Because you may be hearing this going, man, I've got my plate full just trying to minister to youth. Now I've got to minister to parents too? It may not work out that way. It's a staff effort. Sandy mentioned that last night. So sitting down with staff and saying, how are we going to accomplish true family ministry without forsaking age-specific ministry and without forsaking covenantal community, transgenerational ministry? Let me close with this. I got this letter, I think it was two summers ago, after ROIM summer conferences. My name is Caleb, and I'm sending this email because I've attended RYM multiple times and been a Christian basically my whole life. But now I don't know what I believe anymore. I have tons of questions but no answers, questioning everything. Everything I've learned about religion. For example, if God is good and just, then why does he allow sin, injustice, and suffering to exist? Even then, if he's all-powerful, why did he need to kill his son to make up for the mistakes he supposedly doesn't make? It's fascinating questions. You don't know me, although I've been to your class several times. And you've probably, and you're probably not the right person to send this to. Here it is. But I'm not comfortable telling anyone in my family or church because I don't want to disappoint them. Doesn't it break your heart? Too often, the culture we create as parents to our families or to our children and as leaders in the church to our group. It's a culture that if you question anything core to the faith, oh, how's a mom respond to that? To a teenager, you don't really believe that. You know better than that. We've taught you better than that. And I would suggest too many youth leaders are doing the same thing. We're shocked by their struggle. We're shocked by their question. Because somehow, someway, as a leader or a parent, it's an indictment on me. That's the way I feel. Oh, that we would create an environment at home and in the church that invites questions, that invites them, look, I want you real. I don't want you pretending with me. Whether it's your student or it's my kids, please be real with me. Just be, and don't ever, ever believe that I'm disappointed in you. So we apply the gospel to our students and to our children in that way. And that frees them up to be real. If we're not doing age-specific ministry combined with transgenerational ministry and family ministry, we're not doing covenantal ministry. Y'all go have a great lunch.